1: Hello and welcome to this special episode of Idaho Reports. I'm Melissa Davlin, and tonight we're bringing you the latest on the statewide hospital crisis caused by the recent surge in COVID-19 cases. We have healthcare representatives from across Idaho joining us tonight, so no matter where you're watching from, you'll find out what's happening in your part of the state. I'm joined by James Corbett, Director of Community Health Services at Eastern Idaho Public Health in Idaho Falls, Dr. Joshua Kern, Chief Medical Officer at St. Luke's in Magic Valley, and Dr. Robert Robert Scoggins, Chief of Staff, at Kootenai Health in Coeur d'Alene. I'm also joined in studio by Dr. Christine Hahn, state epidemiologist. I have to note that we are both vaccinated and sitting Mm -hmm. distanced, Mm -hmm. so uh, trying to be as safe as possible. Before we get to questions, we have an update on the state's response to the recent surge. Governor Brad Little has announced the state is setting up three monoclonal antibody treatment centers throughout the state, one in eastern Idaho, one in Treasure Valley, and one in north Idaho. Idaho. This state is placing the highest priority on the North Idaho Center, where the hospital situation is the most critical. Governor Little has also directed $10 million in ARPA funds to convert more space in hospitals to provide care for COVID patients, as well as address staffing shortages and transition patients out of hospital settings to free up bed capacity. Dr. Hahn, I wanted to start with you. What is monoclonal antibody treatment and why is it so critical in addressing the current surge?
0: yeah thank you for that question we've been hearing a lot about monoclonal antibodies really in the last few weeks Uh, but really they've been available for quite a while Um, the the antibodies are not where we want to start preventing severe covid we'd prefer people get vaccinated wear their masks stay apart and and don't get infected but if someone gets infected and they're in certain high-risk groups so if you're 55 years and older and you have Uh, chronic lung disease, or uh, you have uh, uh, heart disease, uh, or you have cancer, or if you're 65 and older, you might qualify for this treatment if you get sick. Uh, We just recently saw that, um, that made the news where the governor of Texas received those uh, treatments. And you may recall back uh, in the day uh, President Trump received this type of treatment. So it's certainly something when people have available to them, um, they utilize it because these antibodies, which aren't the natural antibodies that you or I would make in result of an infection, but there's special antibodies that are designed to attack just a certain part of the virus. They can help prevent people from getting landing in the hospital. So they're a really important step for people at high risk, but not sick enough to be in the hospital. And we're trying to keep people out of the hospital, keep them healthy, and of course keep the hospitals from filling up. So it's an early treatment for people who are in the earlier stages of the
1: infection, but it isn't as early as a vaccination. Correct. You know, I, I wanted to ask about the latest statewide picture. What are we looking at as far as cases and test positivity?
0: Yeah, so our cases are going up and much more sharply than they did last summer and fall. Uh, yesterday, I looked back at um, the same date, August 26, you know, a year ago, and boy, instead of a thousand cases, we were looking at about 400. So if you think about it that way, compared to a year ago, uh, we're in worse shape. We have more cases going into the fall, and they're rising more steeply putting an incredible pressure on our hospitals. Uh, Schools are just starting to open. um, And of course, with the Delta variant, which we know is much more contagious, I think we're all very, very concerned about this.
1: So there's a number of cases, but if anything more critically than that, there are the number of hospitalized patients and the number of people in the ICU. Last week, we saw a record number of patients in the ICU statewide at 140. Is, Is there any way that that number is going to start going down at this point? right now
0: you know I think most of us don't see it yet we're we're encouraged uh, that there is an increase in vaccination so we know that some people have decided that they've waited long enough and that they are ready to get vaccinated so we're encouraged by that Um, but as we know the vaccine takes it takes uh, two doses three or four weeks apart and then a couple weeks after that before you're really um, strongly protected so we don't expect that to turn our numbers around in the next few weeks Um, And we are also worried that uh, we will see a rise with uh, people going back to going back to uh, school, going back to other work situations.
1: Dr. Scoggins, I wanted to bring you into the conversation. You're joining us today from Coeur d'Alene. What's the situation in your hospital at Kootenai Health today?
2: Uh, So we had about, uh, I checked before I got on, uh, logged on to this, but we have 86 patients in-house right now with COVID, about 34 of those in our ICU. Uh, It's down slightly from earlier today where we had about 95. Um, Our hospital really only has about 200 medical surgical beds, so nearly half of the beds in the hospital have uh, COVID. Uh, We've done a lot of work on expansion, Uh, making single rooms, double rooms where possible. And uh, we have now uh, taken a conference center and uh, put uh, built out 22 uh, temporary beds as a field hospital over there in case we need to use it. We haven't moved in there yet, but um, we are uh, planning that we may need to do that as soon as this weekend or next week if we continue to see uh, the patients come in.
1: Have you ever had to set up a field hospital type situation before?
2: No, um, I have, uh, I, I was training in the South when Katrina came in and uh, was involved in the evacuation of uh, patients uh, from New Orleans and uh, they flew in, and but I've never seen, a, been a part of a field hospital. I've never seen anything like this. I've been doing pulmonary critical care for, uh, boy, it's been a, been a while now, probably 15 years and I've never seen this many patients at one time in an ICU. The worst flu season I've seen, we've probably had maybe eight to 10 patients in the ICU.
1: All right. How many of those patients in your ICU right now are unvaccinated?
2: Uh, vast majority of them. Um, I would say in the ICU, I checked the other day, we only had probably three or four of the patients that were vaccinated uh, at maximum. Um, and those patients for the most part are transplant patients, cancer patients getting Uh, on some sort of therapy, immunosuppressed for the most part. There are occasionally one, maybe two patients that we have in the hospital that are are truly vaccinated um, fully vaccinated and and probably were non-responders to the vaccine, but it's the vast majority are unvaccinated.
1: How is this affecting other areas of healthcare in your hospital system? Are you able to accept transfers? How is it affecting other procedures?
2: Well, we've, we've pretty much set down transfers from outside facilities, including all the critical access hospitals, unfortunately, that usually rely on us as a regional medical center to take patients. Um, uh, and we've also severely limited our procedures that we normally do, such as heart surgery, neurosurgery. Um, it even affects our trauma, uh, ability to take care of traumas. Um, we have uh, uh, pr- have had difficulty in transferring patients to other areas. Um, uh, Spokane is our main transfer center. Uh, when we're full, um, they're full. Uh, and so we've uh, transferred a patient yesterday to Portland, um, uh, who was a COVID-positive patient who actually was young, 45 years old, and uh, was in need of ECMO. and. Um, uh, you know, we waited two days to get that bed, and that was the first time we've been able to transfer a, a, a COVID patient in weeks.
1: Now, Dr. Uh, Kern, I wanted to bring you into the conversation. What's the situation in Magic Valley right now at your hospitals?
3: Yeah, the, the situation in Magic Valley is not too dissimilar. Uh, we have uh, roughly 50 patients uh, in the hospital right now from COVID. Uh, about a quarter of those are in the ICU Uh, we um, have that that's actually down a little bit today the numbers improved slightly and what we're seeing is anytime we free up a bed uh, we get a transfer in uh, almost immediately from outside either critical access hospitals or even we've taken some from from further outlying areas Um, we we uh, it, it just seems to be a revolving door anytime you, you clear out space. The other thing I'll say is that we already are having patients on the regular floor that we would typically have in the ICU, uh, and I know uh, we'll be talking more about that later, but uh, we're, already, we, we're already having to, to kind of uh, change how we deliver care to just uh, deal with the crush of patients.
1: It was so so we're not at we, we've talked a lot in recent weeks about crisis standards of care and we hadn't talked about that since December when we were getting pretty close to declaring uh, the crisis standards of care. We avoided that situation. It, it doesn't like look like Idaho's going to be so lucky this time. Real quick. Can you um, briefly explain what crisis standards of care are.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think on a certain level when people are talking about crisis standards of care, they're talking about the state declaration that occurs and is laid out in state policy uh, around requesting crisis standards of care and having the state uh, then declare that uh, that has occurred. I think it's more nuanced than that because uh, I, I think we're already kind of butting into this crisis standards of care at the bedside. Uh, on a pretty regular basis throughout uh, most of the hospitals that I'm familiar with here in Southern Idaho. Uh, You know, we we have what are called standard uh, care, contingency care, and then crisis care. And I would say that most of our hospitals are in this gray zone between uh, crisis uh, and contingency already. And it just has to do with pushing uh, nursing ratios and changing how you're taking care of ICU patients, even the most ill, we can't give one-to-one nursing care which is not a a good situation to be Um, so I want to I think that's one way of talking about the nuance here but when when we talk about it uh, at the state level what happens is a, a hospital would request this crisis standards of care and a committee has to meet and assess what the resources are in the entire entirety of the state and then would agree to implement this, which gives some protection, legal protections, and potentially opens up the state to provide more resources. Um, But I'm not sure it actually changes that much at the bedside uh, after that occurs.
1: So when we're talking about what's happening at the bedside in the hospital, we are talking about rationing resources, and in some cases, reallocating or reassigning resources like beds and staff and ventilators to patients with a higher likelihood of survival?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that anybody has had to make that severe of a decision. It's more about uh, ha- having what you would consider to be standard or even at times pushing your nursing ratios and going beyond that. Um, and we know that when that happens, it it increases the risk of making other errors, having poor documentation. Um, and, and that's where when we get this full, it puts all of our patients, at not just the COVID patients, Um, And that's part of why you start uh, pulling levers like decreasing surgical cases, which we've also done uh, here in Magic Valley and uh, our Treasure Valley hospitals, uh, to free up beds and free up staff. You can now move OR staff to to other areas to help take care of the the patients in the
0: hospital.
1: Dr. Scoggins, I, I wanted to go back to you. And when we're talking about the situation at Kootenai Health, how is this having real implications on the health care for patients, whether or not they have COVID?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that I agree with everything Dr. Kern said. Um, you know, we have uh, transitioned to team nursing in many areas of the hospital where uh, we've pulled nurses from the OR and the PACU to provide care in the ICU and even now on the floors because we didn't have enough nursing staff. So you have an ICU nurse that is um, uh, helping uh, other nurses take care of critically ill patients, which they normally don't do, and that increases the risk of having um, uh, problems. They're just not used to doing it. They're doing a great job. It's it's actually working quite well, but it's still not something we normally do. Uh, we also uh, we only have 26 ICU beds normally in our in our hospital, um, and we're currently operating uh, 30. Plus, uh, because we've taken spaces that are not normal um, ICU uh, beds, rooms, and converted them into ICUs, so we're operating in different areas of the hospital, and, and you know that all increases risk, and and we're not able to provide the same um, standards that we normally do. Uh, we're trying our best to take care of every patient, provide all the care that they would normally get. It's different. Um, uh, I think we're doing a good job at it so far, but at some point you run out of beds, you run out of ventilators, you run out of um different uh resources you know we we had to get a bigger backup tank for our oxygen this week uh because we were running through it so fast um so these are things I've never experienced in my career so
1: James, I, I wanted to ask how things are going in Eastern Idaho. You're not having as big a surge as other parts of the state right now. Are you still seeing the ripple effects of the strain on the healthcare system?
4: Yeah, we certainly are. So, from our, I, I think Dr. and Dr. Um, Scoggins do a good job of painting not just the resources that we think of in physical spaces sometimes, but also really those staffing resources. And I think we see that ripple effects in in our hospitals here locally is. They're certainly regional hospitals as well, and tra- taking care of individuals not just inside of our area, but for Western Wyoming and and Southern Montana, and some of these smaller critical access hospitals that were um, that they mentioned. So certainly our hospitals have seen that ripple effect. I think it's on a you know varied basis, day by day, and sometimes hour by hours, as we can all attest to, on where those hospitals are at, and they want to do their best job of taking care of those patients. Um, as best they can when they are seeing it. And I think the real concern comes in, as the mentioned, is if we're kind of full to the top of our capacity and maybe even pushing that at times, is there that capacity if things happen um, out on our roadways with Labor Day coming up and some of these travel areas? And I think that's the real concern. We don't want to get to a position where something bumps over those lines in a real quick manner.
1: In eastern Idaho, in in Idaho Falls especially, you see patients from across that region from you you get surges from Yellowstone travelers getting injured and normal summer and Labor Day um, activities that that land people in the hospital. Um, Are you preparing for a COVID surge as you're watching what's happening across the region?
4: Well, I think we're always preparing for a surge, right? That's why we practice and look at those things. From a public health perspective, we're certainly looking at being able to respond and educate and inform all those individuals that come down with COVID and uh, and are tested and, and seek um, instruction from us. That's our responsibility for that surge. And in turn, I know that our hospitals are also looking at ways to be able to set up not only those resources, but also staffing to be able to accommodate surge if that does happen.
1: You know, Dr. Hahn, statewide at this point, we've been incredibly fortunate. We've seen no pediatric deaths. We've seen some children hospitalized. Is that number increasing lately?
0: Uh, yes, we are seeing, um, uh, compared to the more seniors with our winter surge, it was really almost, uh, all in our seniors, and uh, and we saw patients across the spectrum for sure. But uh, this time, it's it's changed. We are seeing some uh, relatively fewer cases in seniors and hospitalizations, and more children. Uh, not a hu- not like we're seeing in some other parts of the country. But we are concerned uh, with school opening. Uh, you know, just last week and this week. And kids going back to school, we are concerned we're going to see, just having more kids infected means that there'll be some of them uh, that probably get severely ill. So we're very worried about that. Um,
1: as you expect it to potentially increase in coming weeks as schools reopen, we know that um, the, the um, St. Luke's in Treasure Valley has 11 pediatric ICU mm-hmm. beds. Other areas of the state transfer elsewhere. Is mm-hmm. there anything else that the state is doing to kind of uh, prepare? for this potential uh, increase?
0: Yeah, well, I think the main um, thing that we're doing in public health is trying to really educate parents about how to protect their children. Uh, we know some children too young to be vaccinated, but we have a lot of um, children 12 and above who are not yet vaccinated. So I think number one, um, that And I know James at the, at the district health department, all the district health departments are focusing very much on trying to work with parents and with pediatricians, family doctors, to try to encourage them, give them information to vaccinate their children. That's huge. Uh, next, of course, is the masking, which I know is very controversial. We've been seeing the news uh, from different school districts around the state. Um, my children go to Boise High and uh, they are, have a mandatory mask mask. Uh, uh, situation. And I have asked my kids, how many people actually wear the mask? And they're like, oh, all of them. <laughs> but I know that's not the norm. Um, and I know there are many other school districts where they're not, uh, there's very low mask usage. So in public health, we are trying to keep educating about uh, the reason we are encouraging masks in schools and promoting that is because we want kids to stay in school. You know, many of us are parents. <laughs> um, we, we understand uh, the value of education, especially of in-person education. We saw our children suffer last year.
1: You know, I, I wanted to ask about uh, vaccine messaging and, and what's working right now. But, but before we get to that, one of the questions I get most often from our viewers is, any news on when a a vaccine for children younger than 12 might be approved for emergency use authorization?
0: Yeah, so there's definitely no date yet. Uh, The FDA tends to be very, uh, they don't like to promise um, and then have people uh, disappointed or or angry. uh, um, And they have recently asked the manufacturers for more data. They want to be very, very careful in these younger children, uh, make sure they have good safety data. So they have asked them to take more time and uh, study more kids. So I think that uh, while we had hoped initially that maybe by this fall would have that vaccine, I think it's looking more like um, winter, early spring.
1: You know, and I know that Dr. Scoggins, you mentioned earlier that the overwhelming majority of patients in your ICU who are critically ill are unvaccinated. Um, is that messaging getting through to people who maybe weren't the the heck no, I'm never going to get vaccinated group of people, but but the people who were in that wait and see crowd or the people who for whom it was a lower priority are are you starting to see that message get through to people
2: you know i gotta say up here in north idaho we haven't seen a lot outside of the hospital i, I take care of patients uh, in the icu with COVID, and i get the question a lot when can i get the vaccine when i get better um it, it's it, they because they don't want to do this again uh, and um you know we're still lagging behind i think quite a bit up here in in, uh, vaccination despite education and um you know i still i I try to do as much education as i can uh to get people to get vaccinated uh but i i think we just got to keep educating and encouraging people to get the the vaccines they're safe and effective
1: James, I wanted to ask you in public health, is there any messaging that you're seeing is is really starting to stick with the wait and see crowd?
4: Well, I think it's actually important and what we've tried to do, I think, in all all local public health districts and and Dr. Scott just mentioned this, is meet people where they're at and educate and inform them on what they're actually seeing and what they want to know. So the more individual conversations I think we can have with individuals have really shown the most effective. Now, that's time consuming too, but we want people to be well-informed and well-educated when they make the decision.
1: Dr. Kern, um, there's been a lot of conversation lately about three health systems in Idaho, including St. Luke's mandating COVID-19 vaccines for employees with a September deadline. Um, That news came out in July before this really, really big surge and before we really started to see the staffing stresses on the system. Has there been any discussion within St. Luke's about delaying that September deadline to help ease the already stressed uh, staffing that you're seeing?
3: I don't think there's been any conversation about coming back from that decision. When we look at what the core of our decision is, it's about feeling confident in the vaccine and feeling like that is the best way to protect your employees. And at the core of all of our decision making throughout the pandemic, it's how to keep our employees safe and how to keep our patients safe. And we just, we think that vaccination unequivocally is the best way to do those things. And the surge, if anything, I think solidifies that, We're gonna be taking care of COVID patients for the foreseeable future more and more. Almost no nurse or provider is going to be able to avoid uh, that uh, reality and protecting them from the virus with an effective and safe vaccine is just, uh, it's not really on the table for us to, to change that decision.
1: Dr. Hahn, another question we frequently see is how businesses and hospitals are able to mandate vaccination. Um, when some of the vaccines haven't received full FDA approval, um, The uh, Pfizer was just given that approval last week. Do we know that it's safe and effective when it's under emergency use authorization?
0: Yeah, I understand people's concern and questions about that. Of course, I'm no lawyer, but my understanding from reading um, the decisions is that it, it is uh, at least most uh, judgments when this has gone to court is that it is indeed legal that employers can do this, even for an emergency uh, use vaccine. Uh, the question about uh, how do we know it's safe? Well, thankfully, with Pfizer now, you know, they have fully licensed that vaccine. So if that is very important to uh, people, they could certainly seek out Pfizer. Uh, on the other hand, it's also important to know we know more about these vaccines than we've ever known about any vaccine before it got licensed because of the m- s- large number of people getting the vaccine so quickly. We have data on literally millions of Americans. And so uh, it's, I think that people should have some confidence that there's a lot more known than there are. Uh, other vaccines might have studies with just a few thousand people in it before they're licensed.
1: Yeah, we have a couple minutes left. Um, Dr. Kern, Dr. Scoggins, I I wanted to ask, um, and I'll start with you, Dr. Scoggins, how are your healthcare workers holding up at Cooney Health?
2: I think, uh, you know, we've been doing this pretty continuously for almost a year and a half, um, and they're pretty tired. Uh, I think our nurses, especially in the ICU, we've had a COVID unit for uh, a dedicated COVID unit for over a year. Uh, they are in continuous PPE on that unit we've never shut it down we've never been without covid patients in that unit and, and they're tired um i think they're also frustrated uh, that uh, that uh, they see a way we can stop this um they see that people could get vaccinated and um, and that's frustrating and when you're taking care of these patients they continue to show up to work every day and they work hard and and um you know they're they're getting the job done. I'm really proud of our staff and and how they've responded, and uh, I enjoy
3: working with them every day.
1: Dr. Kern, how are your employees holding up?
3: Yeah, same same story for our employees. It's uh, it's exhausting, and just the seeing the news of and, and seeing the numbers going up, and the dread of you know working extra shifts, uh, pushing nursing ratios. I and, and the thing I focus on a lot is the moral injury that comes from having to provide suboptimal care and just knowing that you can't give the same level of attention and uh, time and respect that you would normally give because uh, of, of the crush of patients. And that, that I think is the, the worst part of the entire thing is is knowing you were forced to give suboptimal care and this could have been prevented.
1: James, there are people who might be watching who still think that this is hyperbole or uh, or blown out of proportion. Um, in, in about 30 seconds, what would you say to those viewers?
4: Well, it's, I wish I could show them more than I could say, right? I think if any of these doctors could show them what's happening on the ICU floor, I think that's what would change things. Sadly, that can't always be possible. So I think they have to rely on the individuals on the front line that are seeing this every day and the frustration that they feel. I know everyone is frustrated. Um, I think we can all agree on that. But I think you have to push that past that frustration, and really just look towards the future and that hope of of getting past this as a community.
1: Dr. Han, um, any last words? Any any signs of hope that you have?
0: Yeah, I think there are some. Um, I think we're all really gratified to see the vaccination numbers going up. I think that you know, of course, we would have been delighted to see this months ago, but we are happy that there are Idahoans that are saying, "Yeah, I I I I think I've." given this enough time and I need to get vaccinated. Uh, we also see um, you know, the, the, our healthcare workers, our uh, public health folks working tirelessly and people in the community to combat this. And I think uh, uh, we're gonna hope that that's gonna pay off. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us and thank you for watching. We have a
1: follow-up scheduled for September 9th, airing on Idaho Public Television at 8 p.m. We'll see you then.